0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, each of us here, be so captured by your love so liberated by your love that our worship of your son jesus christ and uh, the way that we live our lives as a testimony and a witness to him would be as natural to us as breathing i pray these things in the powerful name of jesus amen you may be seated it's good to be with all of you this morning great to see your faces Um, I want to begin this morning by talking about time. I think each of us in our bones knows that time is not just an endless progression of blips. That life is not a series of disconnected moments. But that life has meaning. Our lives are meaningful. They must be. And we spend our days on the hunt, searching for what that meaning might be. This ultimately is why I'm a Christian. And I've been a Christian for about 20 years now, but I've only been an Anglican Christian for five or six. And one of the reasons, uh, initially, uh, that drew me to Anglican spirituality is how this way of being a Christian orients us in time. And nowhere is that more clear than in the Book of Common Prayer. In his biography of the Book of Common Prayer, Professor Alan Jacobs points to how the prayer book provides a kind of scaffolding for our experience of time. First, he writes, the prayer book guides the passage of each one of our days. From sun up to sundown, morning and evening prayer frame our days. Second, following the rhythms of the church calendar, the liturgical year, from the fall to final judgment, the prayer book guides our passage through every year. And lastly, it guides each one of us through the stages of life, from our births to our burials. And as our days become our years, become our lives, Jacobs writes, the prayer book masters and orders time on each of these scales. It renders temporal experience accessible and meaningful for each Christian participating in the life of Christ's church. All of this is contained in the Anglican prayer book, he writes. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that being an Anglican is the only or even the best way to be a Christian. It's not. I'm not saying that. But the way that it helps order our time is one of the things that I love most about the Anglican way. And this is also why Advent is my favorite liturgical season. As we begin a new liturgical year, The season of Advent helps us to find our place in time. Now, as many have pointed out before, Advent has a triple focus. It brings together the past and the present and the future. And we saw that in our passages that we've read this morning. In the gospel, uh, that directs us to the past. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And in our psalm, this points us to the future. When God will restore the fortunes of Zion. In the passage of Acts, which is where I want to focus this morning, this locates us in the time between, in the present. And location is the language that Fleming Rutledge uses to describe how we can understand Advent. This is how she describes it, the location of the church. The church is located between the first coming and the second coming. The present is the time between. This is Advent time. This is the season in which the church lives her life. Fleming Rutledge writes this. She says, if we understand our location, we will understand Advent. And if we understand Advent, we will understand what it means to be a Christian. And I'm not sure there's a better passage to help us understand all of these things than Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now, Advent is a season of expectation, and this passage recalibrates all expectations. Our expectations of God, and also what God expects of us. So we're going to look at this passage this morning, and I want to situate us in this scene. The book of Acts begins at the tail end of Jesus' first coming. After he was killed and then raised again, we read in verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to his followers by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus was raised to new life, he spent 40 days with his disciples. He's pastoring his disciples. He's preparing them for the journey ahead. And in verse 6, we're told that all of the disciples, all of his followers, they come together And then we hear the first and only question that the disciples ask Jesus. And of course, during those 40 days, they would have asked him many questions, but this is the only question that Luke records for us. And this question gives us insight into what they were expecting now that Jesus was back from the dead. Expectations matter. They ask him this in verse 6, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And in this question, we see what they were expecting. Now, if this was a test, they would have received partial credit. They were sort of right and sort of wrong. So what did the disciples get right? Well, I think they're right in thinking that Jesus alone can finish the job. Jesus alone can bring the kingdom of God fully and finally. But the disciples were wrong about the scope of the kingdom and its timing. The kingdom of God is not limited to Israel. All of the nations will be grafted into the great promises of God. The disciples were wrong about timing. In verse 7, Jesus says to them, The time is not now. It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set. And then what Jesus does next really complicates things. He says, It's not for you to know when the kingdom will be consummated. But in verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Ever the master of the conversation, Jesus turns the table. He says, enough about me, let's talk about you. The Holy Spirit will empower you, and you will be my witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and he disappears from view. And the angels tell us in verse 11 that in the same way that Jesus ascended, he will descend and he will come. And just like that, the church enters the time between. And though this happened some 2,000 years ago, the church finds herself in this very same location as those amazed disciples we still live in the time between. And Acts one tells us how to think about this time, how to live in this time. This passage tells us that we can expect two things. We can expect waiting and witnessing. The church lives in this time between and this time is marked by waiting and being spirit empowered witnesses. And so I wanna spend some time unpacking just what that means for us. Now, each of us, I think, tends towards one of two equal and opposite errors in this regard. Some of us tend towards passivity, and some of us tend towards overactivity. Some of us gravitate towards the waiting, and I'll call those of us in this group the -the Jesus-take-the-wheel group. If anything's going to happen, it's going to require miraculous supernatural intervention. Jesus needs to show up and take the wheel. This way of thinking leads to passivity. We expect Jesus to do everything because only Jesus can change hearts and change minds. But if we get caught up in this error, we're clearly forgetting that God most often works in a mediated way through his people. So that's the first error, passivity. Passivity. The second one is overactivity. Some of us gravitate towards the witnessing bit. And I'll call this group the functional deists. Those of us in this group are tempted to think that Jesus got the ball rolling. He sort of pushed it ahead. And now that he's absent, it's all up to us to sort it out. We think if we don't do it, it simply won't happen. Now, if the first error leads to paralysis, the second one will crush us because we were never meant to bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. But Acts chapter 1 verse 1 shows us a very different way. This verse helps us to thread the needle between seeing ourselves as mere bystanders on the one hand or uh, on the other as the heroes of the story, because we're, ne- we're neither bystanders nor the center. Now in verse 1, the author tells us that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are, are two-volume work. They're a composite together, they make up one whole. Luke is part one and Acts is part two. Now, normally I love the translation of the Bible that we have in our bulletins, the New Revised Standard Version or the NRSV, but here I think the translators uh, make a small mistake and, and miss the mark. They translate this verse differently than every other uh, English translation that I could find. I looked at the RSV, the ESV, the NET, the NIV, the ASV, NASV, KJV, even the message. They all translate it differently. So I'm going to read uh, how they translate them, and I want you to see if you can notice the difference and why it might matter. So here's the NRSV in our bulletin. It says this, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning. But virtually every other English translation puts it like this. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Did you catch it? Did you catch the difference? What Jesus did and taught from the beginning versus what Jesus began to do and teach. It's a minor difference, but it has a massive implication for our understanding of the church and what the church is supposed to do and be in the world. This verse is telling us that the first book, the Gospel of Luke, is about what Jesus began to do. And the implication is that this second book, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus continues to do. So the natural question we should ask is, how in the world does Jesus continue to do things? Right? Immediately after this, Jesus is whisked up into heaven. How does Jesus continue to act in the world? Well, the answer is through the church. You see, Jesus is ascended, but He is not absent. He's present in the world, but in a different way. He's present in the world through the Spirit-filled church. And once we understand this, I think it explains so much about uh, the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the book of Acts, and uh, how we live in the world. This explains, for example, The very strange question that the ascended Jesus asks Saul on the road to Damascus later on in the book of Acts. Saul was ruthlessly persecuting the early church, the Christians. He oversaw the first uh, martyrdom, the stoning of Stephen. And Jesus stops him as he's on his way to the city called Damascus. And Jesus says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the Church, but why are you persecuting me? Christ and the Church go together they 're inseparable but distinct and this, I think, is what Gerard Manley Hopkins is describing so beautifully in his poem as Kingfisher 's Catch Fire. You may have noticed that this is printed in the front of your bulletins, and i 'd love for you to turn there to to read it and follow along as I read it for us in the second stanza of this verse, Hopkins describes how Uh, the Christian acts as Christ and how Christ plays in us. The just man he's talking about is the person who's been justified by Jesus. And this person acts in accord with his or her new nature in Christ. I'll read the poem, the second stanza for us. I say more, the just man justices. Keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father through the features of men's faces. This poem is saying that as we live our lives, our hands and feet are the limbs of Christ. Our faces are the face of Christ. And this, I think, gets us close to what Paul means when he says in Galatians 2:20 that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this time between, Christ has commissioned us his disciples, and it's not to a life of staring up at the sky, waiting for God to do something. But neither is it a life where we try to pull the kingdom of heaven down by our bootstraps. Christians are commissioned as spirit-empowered witnesses. That means we're sent near and far to bear witness to the reality that Jesus Christ came. In his death and in his resurrection, he conquered sin and death and the devil. We're sent to bear witness to the promise that he is coming again in judgment to recreate this dislocated world. This is the gospel message. This is the message that we are called and invited to bear witness to. But it's never been an easy message to believe. That was true in the first century, and I think it's especially true in our time. Our time that's filled with abusive spiritual leaders and school shootings, racial injustice, Mutating viruses, loneliness. The 21st century is a world filled with evil and darkness, with fear and with apathy. And it can be very hard to believe that Christianity is anything other than a delusion, and a dangerous delusion at that. To so many, the gospel, the message of Advent is incredible. It just can't be believed. And so I think, given this, we need to ask a very Advent question. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible in a world like ours? How is it possible that the gospel could be credible in this time between? Well, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, Leslie Newbegan, who was a 20th century missionary and theologian, he asks this question. How is it possible that the gospel could be credible in our world? this is his answer, and I think it's the right one. He says, the only answer to this question, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. This is what he's saying. People look around and they see more death, and darkness than they do light and hope and our lives are the living proof we are the evidence that makes the message of Jesus plausible our witness is what leads people to think that the story of Jesus might not just be a myth after all and of course our witness doesn't convert anybody it just makes Jesus possible plausible That means that the time between really matters. It means that the life of the church is not a parenthesis. Simply put, to be a spirit-empowered witness means to live and to love as if what we believe about Jesus were true. It means living and loving in the present as if we really believe that Jesus came and that he is coming again. Here's what it looks like rather than insulating and isolating ourselves from the world's many sicknesses, we enter in and we enter in bearing the balm of Jesus Christ. In a culture that sacrifices everything and everyone on the altar of career, it means that we love our work, but we don't live for it at the expense of relationships and rest. In our culture of rage, Bearing witness means that we walk with conviction, but we do it in a quiet and a gentle and a kind way. It means we create art that doesn't shy away from the darkness of the human condition, but we create art that also breathes hope. It means that we make our homes a haven of hospitality where the lost and the lonely can receive love and maybe even a decent meal. It looks like being slow to speak and quick to listen. It looks like being quick to forgive, quick to say, I'm sorry, quick to ask for forgiveness. It looks like all of these things and so many more because Christ plays in 10,000 places. The message of Advent is this. Christ has come. Christ comes even now through us, through the church. And Christ is coming again, and he's coming soon. And when that day comes, as uh, we prayed, as we heard sung from Psalm 126, when that day comes, those who have sowed in tears will reap with songs of joy. The Lord will liberate the captives, and our mouths will be filled with laughter. On that day, it will be said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for us, and we will rejoice. Amen.